0: Section 20. Of A History of the Four Georges and of William IV in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 56. Two New Men. The year 1780 that witnessed the Gordon riots welcomed into political life two men both of whom were young both of whom bore names that were already familiar from an honorable parentage and both of whom were destined to play very conspicuous parts in the house of commons one of the two men was known to his family alone and his intimates as a youth of great promise and great knowledge which gave to his twenty years the ripened wisdom of a statesman and a scholar the other who was eight years older had been for some years in the public eye had been the hero of a romantic scandal which had done much to make his name notorious and had written some dramatic works which had done more to make his name famous it was a fortunate chance that when the house of commons stood in need of new blood and new men the same time and the same year saw the return to parliament of william pitt and of Richard Brinsley Sheridan. It has been said that every reader of the Iliad finds himself irresistibly compelled to take sides with one or other of the great opposing camps, and be thenceforward either a Greek or a Trojan. In something of the same spirit, every student of the reign of the third George becomes perforce a partisan of one or other of two statesmen who divided the honors of its prime between them who were opposed on all the great questions of their day and who represented at their best the two forces into which english political life was then and is still divided the history of england for the closing years of the eighteenth century and the early dawn of the nineteenth century is the history of these two men and of their influence those who study their age and their career are separated as keenly and as hotly today as they were separated keenly and hotly a hundred years ago into the followers of charles james fox or the followers of william pitt the record of english party politics is a record of long and splendid duels between recognized chiefs of the two antagonistic armies what the struggle between gladstone and disraeli for example was to our own time the struggle between fox and pitt was to our ancestors of three generations ago all the force and feeling that made for what we now call liberal principles found its most splendid representative in the son of lord holland all the force and feeling that rallied around the conservative impulse looked for and found its ideal in the son of lord chatham the two men were as much contrasted as the opinions that they professed. To the misgoverned, misguided, splendidly reckless boyhood and early manhood of Fox, Pitt opposed the gravity and stillness of his youth. The exuberant animal vitality of Fox, wasted itself overlong in the flame of aimless passions, was emphasized by the solid reserve the passionless austerity of pitt the one man was compact of all the heady enthusiasms the splendid generosities of a nature rich in the vitality that sought eagerly new outlets for its energy that played hard as it worked hard that exulted in extremes the other moved in a narrow path to one envisaged aim and conscious of a certain physical frailty, husbanded his resources, limited the scope of his fine intellect, and acted not indeed along the lines of least resistance, but within lines of purpose that were not very far apart. The one explored the mountain and the valley, lingered in gardens and orchards, or wandered at all adventure upon desolate heaths, the other pursued in patience the white highway to his goal untempted or at least unconquered by allurements that could prove irresistible to his adversary the two men differed as much in appearance as in mind the outer seeming of each is almost as familiar as the forms and faces of contemporaries fox was massively corpulent furiously untidy a heroic sloven, his bull-throat and cheeks too often black with a three-days beard, infinitely lovable, exquisitely cultured, capable of the noblest tenderness, yet with a kind of grossness sometimes that was but a part and perhaps an inevitable part of his wide humanity. Pitt was slender, boyish, precise, punctilious in attire, his native composure only occasionally lightened by a flash of humor or sweetened by a show of playfulness, old beyond his years and young to the end of his short life, sternly self-restrained and self-commanded, gracious in a kind of melancholy unconscious charm, a curiously unadorned, uncolored personality that attracted where it did attract, with a magnetism that was perhaps all the more potent for being somewhat difficult to explain. Fox was always a lover in many kinds of love, fugitive, venal, illicit, honorable, and enduring. Pitt carried himself through temptations with a monastic rigor. There was a time when his friends implored him for the sake of appearances, and not to flout too flagrantly the manners of the time, to show himself in public with a woman of the town his one love story, strange and fruitless, neither got nor gave happiness, and remains an unsolved mystery. There were only two tastes held in common by the two men, and those were tastes shared by most of the gentlemen of their generation and century, the taste for politics and the taste for wine. Men of the class of Holland's son, of Chatham's son, if they were not soldiers and sailors and very often when they were soldiers and sailors went into political life as naturally as they went into a university or into the hunting field in the case of the younger fox and the younger pitt the political direction was conspicuously inevitable from the beginning the paths of both lay plain from the threshold of the nursery to the threshold of st stephen's the lad who was the chosen companion of his father at an age when his contemporaries had only abandoned a horn-book to grapple with cordarius the boy who learned the principles of elocution and the essence of debate from the lips of the great commoner were children very specially fostered in the arts of statesmanship and curiously favored in the knowledge that enables men to guide and govern men from the other taste there was no escape or little escape possible for men of that day it would have been strange indeed if fox had been absolved from the love of wine which was held by every one he knew from his father's old friend and late enemy rigby to the elderly placeholder gambler and letter-writer selwyn who loved slandered and failed to ruin fox's brilliant youth it would have been impossible for pitt floated through a precarious childhood on floods of oporto to liberate his blood and judgment from the generous liquor that promised him a strength it sapped it was no more disgrace to the austere pitt than to the profligate fox to come to the house of commons visibly under the influence of much more wine than could possibly have been good for hercules Sobriety was not unknown among statesmen, even in those days of many bottles, but intoxication was no shame, and Burke was no more commended for his temperance than Fox or Pitt or Sheridan were blamed for their intemperance. William Pitt was born in 1759, when George II still seemed stable on the throne and when the world knew nothing of that grandson and heir to whose service the child of chatham was to be devoted he was the fourth child and second son the third son and last child of chatham was born two years later william pitt was delicate from his infancy and by reason of his delicacy was never sent to school he was educated by private tuition directly guided and controlled by his father from the first he was precocious full of promise full of performance he acquired knowledge eagerly and surely what he learned he learned well and thoroughly trained from his cradle in the acquirements essential to a public life he applied himself as soon as he was of age to appreciate his tastes and to form a purpose to equipping himself at all points for a political career. When the great Chatham died, he left behind him a son who was to be as famous as himself, a statesman formed in his own school, trained in his own methods, inspired by his counsels, and guided by his example. A legend which may be more than legend has it that from the first destiny seemed determined to confront the genius and the fame of Fox with the genius and the fame of Pitt it is said that the foxes were assured by a relative of the pitts that the young son of chatham then a child under a tutor's charge showed parts which were sure to prove him a formidable rival to the precocious youth who was at once the delight and the despair of lord holland's life it is certain that the young fox was early made acquainted with the ripe intelligence and eager genius of the younger pitt it was his chance to stand with the boy one night at the bar of the house of lords and to be attracted and amazed at the avidity with which pitt followed the debate the sagacity with which he commented upon what he saw and heard and the readiness with which he formulated answers to arguments which failed to carry conviction to his dawning wisdom pitt loved the house of commons while he was still in the schoolroom it was inevitable that he should belong to the house of commons and he entered it at the earliest possible moment even before he was legally qualified to do so for he was not quite of age when he first took his seat the qualities of fairness and fitness which greek wisdom praised in the conduct of life were characteristic of pitt's life in its zealous patient preparation for public life its noble girding of the loins against great issues its wistful renunciation of human hopes its early consciousness of terrible disease its fortitude in the face of catastrophes so unexpected and so cruel in its pensive isolation in the richness of those early successes that seemed as if in anticipation to offer compensation for the early death his life seems to have been adorned with certain ornaments and ordered by certain laws that make it strangely comely curiously symmetrical in that youth of his which was never quite young in which was never allowed to grow old in his austere attitude to so much that youth holds most dear in the high passion of his patriotism with its eager desire so often and so sternly thwarted to add to England's glory, he stands apart from many greater and many wiser men in a melancholy, lonely dignity. It has been given to few men to inspire more passionate attachment in the minds of his contemporaries. It has been given to few statesmen to be regarded abroad by eyes for the most part envious or hostile as preeminently representative of the qualities that made his country at once disliked and feared his political instincts were for the most part admirable and if it had been his fortune to serve a sovereign more reasonable more temperate and more intelligent than george the third his name might have been written among the great reformers of the world at home an unhappy deference to the dictates of a rash and incapable king, a broad and enforced opposition to one of the greatest forces and one of the greatest conquerors that European civilization has seen, prevented Pitt from gaining that position to which his genius under conditions less persistently unhappy would have entitled him. To have gained what he did gain, under such conditions was in itself a triumph. The newcomer who entered Parliament at the same period as William Pitt was as curiously unlike him as even Fox himself. If few knew anything of Pitt, everyone knew something of Sheridan, who had already made fame in one career and was now about to make fame in another. It may afford consolation to the unappreciated to reflect that the most famous english dramatist since shakespeare's day the brightest wit of an age which piqued itself into being considered witty the most brilliant orator of an age which regarded oratory as one of the greatest of the arts and whose roll is studded with the names of illustrious orators the most unrivalled humorist of a century which in all parts of the world distinguished itself by its love of humor was looked upon in his nonage as a dull unpromising boy chiefly remarkable for his idleness and carelessness the quality which we now call bohemianism certainly ran in sheridan's blood his grandfather dr thomas sheridan the friend of swift the dublin clergyman and schoolmaster was a delightfully amiable wholly reckless slovenly indigent and cheerful personage his father thomas sheridan was a no less cheerful no less careless man who turned play-actor and taught elocution and married a woman who wrote novels and a life of swift at one time he could boast the friendship of dr johnson who seems to have regarded him with an ill-humoured contempt but dr johnson's expression of this contempt brought about a quarrel the most remarkable thing about him is that he was the father of his son neither he nor his wife appears to have had any idea of their good fortune mrs sheridan once declared of her two boys that she had never met with two such impenetrable dunces none the less the father contrived with difficulty to scrape together enough money to send his boys to Harrow, and there luckily Dr. Parr discerned that Richard, with all his faults, was by no means an impenetrable dunce. Both he and Sumner, the headmaster of Harrow, discovered in the schoolboy Sheridan great talents which neither of them was capable of calling into action. Richard Sheridan, came from Harrow School and Harrow Playgrounds to London, and later on to Bath. London did not make him much more industrious or more careful than he had been at Harrow on the hill. It was far pleasanter to translate the honeyed Greek of Theocritus with its babble of Sicilian shepherds, its nymphs and waters and Sicilian seas, than to follow the beaten track of ordinary education it was vastly more entertaining to translate the impassioned prose of aristinatus into impassioned verse especially in collaboration with a cherished friend than to yawn over euclid and to grumble over cocker the translation of aristinatus the boyish task of sheridan and his friend hallhead still enjoys a sort of existence in the series of classical translation in bones library it is one of the ironies of literature that fate has preserved this translation, while it has permitted the two Begum speeches, that in the House of Commons and that in Westminster Hall, practically to perish. What little interest does now cling to the early work belongs to the fact of its being a collaboration. Halhead, who worked with Sheridan at the useless task was a clever young oxford student who was as poor as he was clever and who seemed to entertain the eccentric idea that large sums of money were to be readily obtained from the reading public for rendering in flippant verse of the prose of an obscure author whose very identity is involved in doubt aristinatus did not become the talk of the town even in spite of an ingeniously promulgated rumor assigning the authorship of the verses to Dr. Johnson. Neither did the plays and essays in which the friends collaborated meet with any prosperous fate. From the doing of Greek prose into English verse, Sheridan and Hallhead turned to another occupation in which, as in the first, they were both of the same mind. They both fell in love and both fell in love with the same woman all contemporary accounts agree in regarding the daughter of linley the musician as one of the most beautiful women of her age those who knew the portrait which the greatest painter of his time painted of sheridan's wife as saint cecilia will understand the extraordinary the almost universal homage which society and art wit and wealth and genius and rank paid to miss linley unlike the girl in sheridan's own poem who is assured by her adorer that she will meet with friends in all the aged and lovers in the young miss linley found old men as well as young men competing for her affection and for the honor of her hand sheridan and Hallhead were little more than boys when they first beheld and at once adored miss linley charles sheridan richard's elder brother was still a very young man but miss linley had old lovers too men long past the middle pathway of their lives who besought her to marry them with all the impetuosity of youth one of them whom she wisely rejected on the ground that wealth alone could not compensate for the disparity in years carried off his disappointment gracefully enough by immediately settling a sum of three thousand pounds upon the young lady. There is an air of romance over the whole course of Sheridan's attachment to Miss Linley. For a long time he contrived to keep his attachment a secret from his elder brother Charles, and from his friend Hellhead, both of whom were madly in love with Miss Linley, and neither of whom appears to have had the faintest suspicion of finding a rival. The one in so close a kinsman, the other in his own familiar friend, it must be admitted that Sheridan does not appear to have behaved with that uprightness which was to be expected from his gallant and nature. Not merely did he keep his secret from his brother and his friend, but he seems to have allowed his friend to look upon him as a confidant and ally in pressing Hallhead's suit upon Miss Linley. Hall had reproached him sadly but not bitterly in a poetical epistle the value of which is more personal than poetical when he discovered the real mind of his friend then like a wise man if a sad one Hall had went away he sailed for india the golden land of so many wrecked hopes and disappointed ambitions he long outlived his first love and his successful rival he became, in the fullness of time, a member of Parliament, and he died in 1830. He is dimly remembered as the author of a grammar of the Bengali language and of a work on Gentoo laws translated from the Persian. Sheridan's courtship progressed more and more romantically. The persecutions of a married rake named Matthews drove Miss Linley to fly to France with Sheridan, to whom she was secretly married at Calais. The revengeful and disappointed Matthews inserted a libelous attack upon Sheridan in the Bath Chronicle. Sheridan extorted at his sword's point a public apology from Matthews. Further and baser mendacity on the part of Matthews provoked a second duel in which the combatants seemed to have fought with desperate ferocity and in which Sheridan, badly wounded, refused to ask his life at the hands of his antagonist, and was only rescued by the seconds. A long period of separation followed, full of dark hours for Sheridan, hours only brightened by the occasional meetings of the most eccentric kind, as when the wild young poet, quaintly disguised in the complicated capes of a hackney coachman, had the tormenting privilege of driving his beloved from Covent Garden Theatre where her voice and beauty were nightly charming all London. At last the opposition of Linley was overcome, and on April 13, 1773, the most brilliant man and the most beautiful woman of their day were for the second time and more formally married, and a series of adventures more romantic than fiction came to an end. The romance, it is agreeable to think, did not conclude with the marriage ceremony, sheridan seems to have offered his wife as devoted an attachment after their marriage as he had shown in the days of dueling and disguising that preceded it he wrote verses to her and she wrote verses to him long after they had settled down to serene domesticity which breathed the most passionate expressions of mutual love and yet there is a legend it is to be hoped and believed that it is only a legend which ends the romance very sadly. According to the legend, young Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Sheridan's close friend, felt more than a friend's admiration for the wife of his friend. According to the legend, Elizabeth Sheridan returned the passion, which by the unhappiness it brought with it shortened her life. According to the legend, Lord Edward only married the fair Pamela, Philippe Egalité's daughter, because of the striking resemblance she bore to the saint cecilia of his dreams the legend rests on the authority of madame de genlis who is probably pamela's mother and who is no infallible authority it is possible that the undoubted resemblance of pamela to mrs sheridan is the origin of the whole story lord edward was always falling in love in a graceful chivalrous kind of way but there is no serious proof that his friendship for mrs sheridan was anything more than the friendship an honorable man may entertain for the wife of his friend the graver and more authentic story of fitzgerald's life has yet to be told in these pages for a brief period after his marriage sheridan thought of devoting himself to the law but his thoughts and tastes were otherwise inclined and on january twenty seventh seventeen seventy five not quite two years after his marriage the rivals was produced at covent garden and a new chapter opened in the history of dramatic literature it is curious to think that the clumsiness of the player to whom the part of Sir Lucius O'Trigger was given came very near to damning the most brilliant comedy that the English stage has seen for nearly two centuries. The happy substitution of actor Clinch for actor Lee, however, saved the piece and made Sheridan the most popular author in London. How grateful Sheridan felt to Clinch for rescuing Sir Lucius is shown by the fact that, his next production the farce called st patrick's day or the scheming lieutenant was expressly written to afford opportunity for clinch's peculiar talents in seventeen seventy seven came the school for scandal sheridan's masterpiece which was followed by sheridan's last dramatic work the critic never probably before was so splendid a success gained so rapidly so steadily increased in so short a time, to come so abruptly to an end in the very pride of its triumph. Quite suddenly, the most famous English author then alive found opportunity for the display of wholly new and unexpected talents, and became one of the most famous politicians and orators alive. There had indeed always been a certain political bent in Sheridan's mind, he had tried his hand at many political pamphlets, fragments of which were found among his papers by Moore. He had always taken the keenest interest in the great questions which agitated the political life of the waning eighteenth century. The general election of seventeen eighty gave him an opportunity of expressing this interest in the public field, and he was returned to Parliament as member for the borough of Stamford. It is difficult to find a parallel in our history for the extraordinary success which attended Sheridan in his political life as it had already attended him in his dramatic career. Just on the threshold of his political career, Sheridan lost the wife he loved so well. He was profoundly afflicted, but the affliction lessened and he married a Miss Ogle there is a story told in connection with this second marriage which is half melancholy half humorous and wholly pathetic the second miss sheridan young clever and ardently devoted to her husband was found one day according to this story walking up and down her drawing-room apparently in a frantic state of mind because she had discovered that the love-letters sheridan had sent to her were the same as those which he had written to his first wife word for word sentence for sentence passion for passion they were the same letters no doubt sheridan made his peace it is to be presumed that he thought the letters so good that they might very well serve a second turn but this act of literary parsimony was not happy parsimony of his written work was however sheridan's peculiarity Verses addressed to his dear St. Cecilia make their appearance again and again under altered conditions in his plays. It is singular enough, as has been happily said, that the treasures of wit which Sheridan was thought to possess in such profusion should have been the only species of wealth which he ever dreamed of economizing. End of section 20